Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Thanks for joining us today, as always, uh, unless you're a first-time listener, and then welcome. Uh, So there was a big deal this week. In fact, the biggest deal of the year, AT&T has agreed to buy Time Warner for about $85 billion in equity value and $107 billion plus if you include debt. We were fortunate enough here at Bloomberg to break the deal last week, a few days before it was announced. And I'm joined this week by my colleague Ed Hammond, who got the initial tip on this deal for us, and Global Deals Executive Editor Jeff McCracken, who worked with Ed and I in a tense 24-hour period or so as we kept trying to get more details and ultimately decided to run the story with what we had. Ed and Jeff, welcome back to the show. Good to be here. Thank you, Alex. So I don't really necessarily want to tell people exactly how we broke this story, because obviously we don't want to really get into the sourcing behind it, but more about sort of the process of why we felt confident enough to run a story and then maybe a little bit on what we learned from finding out more details over the past few days on how this deal came together. Because if you go back and read our initial story, it basically says, look, these companies are in talks on a merger, but we, you know this still could be early days. And then as sort of the story progressed, the Wall Street Journal advanced the story a little bit by saying it could come out this weekend. And by that time, we were able to cobble together a bunch of other details and sort of broke the final terms on the deal. But I wanted to talk briefly about why we felt confident enough to run the story when we did, because obviously we knew what we were doing here by running a story saying AT&T is in merger talks with Time Warner. That's not a story you want to get wrong. That would be a huge embarrassment to us. So, uh, you know, a lot went into that in a very short amount of time to, to become confident enough to run the story. And, and, and I again, without really getting into details here, I can tell people that this wasn't a very typical slam dunk. We had two rock-solid sources who told us exactly what was happening, and part of that was why our initial story uh, was a little bit vague on details. Uh, you know, So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about sort of why you guys felt confident to do this. Well, it's a good point you make, Alex, that it would have been a <clears throat> catastrophe to get wrong, potentially a sort of career or reputation-ending catastrophe for you and I, whose names were on the story. <laughs> but Jeff, whose name was not on the story, is the guy who wears the boss hat and therefore gets to take, ultimately, the big decision to sort of pull the trigger or not. And and I guess it, I'm interested to hear from his point of view why he sort of felt comfortable with, you know, everything we had taken to him, all the reporting we had done, and then said, you know, right, guys, we have enough, let's go. So... The initial tip came in Wednesday morning, as I recall, last Wednesday morning. Is that right, Ed? That's. I think it was, yeah, That's very, right. very late Tuesday night for me, but early Wednesday Yeah, morning. I think maybe you called me Tuesday night, yeah. And then you, made, you two made a lot of calls, and I made a couple calls on Wednesday, and we didn't really get very far until Wednesday evening, as I recall, when Ed had a conversation that got us probably 80% of the way there or 75% of the way there. And then I felt, I woke up Thursday morning at 5.30 and thought, okay, we're going to run this at 9 a.m. So did I. 9, 9.30 a.m. In fact, I alerted Bloomberg TV to be aware of it at that point. And the the conversations we had with AT&T and with Time Warner were not very helpful. They were slightly helpful, but not helpful enough. And we, we basically sat on that story from 9 a.m. 
And I think around 3 p.m., so six hours later, uh, Ed came to me with some more information. Uh, and, and what I did is I wrote down everything we knew, everyone who had given us help and everyone who wasn't returning calls. And it just became crystal clear to me that there was no way the, that we had this wrong. So so that, so that was the reason I wanted to talk about this was in many ways, and I was talking to you, Jeff, about this, I think the the day after we broke the story was that from my standpoint, uh, this story, I don't know that I would have been so confident to run the story when I was new on the beat. But when you have a whole bunch of people that you talk to on sort of a daily basis almost, you know, I mean, you're not talking to these people every day, but certainly, you know, if, if I have, let's say, 50 solid relationships with people that run in these general big media circles, you, you sort of start to know the right people to call that would have the right information. And you can then tell based on their non-responses or the the way that they're speaking to you, certain keywords almost that they don't say that makes you almost more confident that you're right in many ways, even though they're not telling you you're right. And that I think is just an acquired skill from doing this job for years. Yeah. I, I just to add to that, I think, you know, obviously gut and instinct are very important and covering MA from, you know, however new you are or experienced you are on a job. And I think obviously you get better at that over time, but you're right on the idea that it's as much the people who don't respond or how people sort of refuse to cooperate. And that tells you a lot on something like this. There was one person who was involved in this who will remain completely nameless, who um, not only did they not take the calls over a sort of a decent period of time, but they eventually got someone else to call me back randomly and give a very detailed explanation for why they weren't taking the calls and why they wouldn't be able to take any calls from me for a little while. And uh, it's just that kind of thing that's so unusual and kind of I think raises your um, alert levels as a reporter particularly if you've been doing this for a while and you therefore have a sense of how people usually respond to requests for information. I think I wrote down six the names of six people who were usually almost always helpful who were suddenly not helpful and for better or worse I just thought there's no way there's no way that they would not all <laughs> together, that not one of them would have reached out and said, your story is flat wrong. That was what gave me the confidence, too. That it, was the main point. It was the the absence of the negative, if you will, Correct. that made me feel like, let's do this. And we, I think we moved the story at 3.35 p.m. on Thursday. And uh, there, no one really matched it the rest of Thursday, which always makes you a little nervous. Um, in fact, one of the better conversations I had was with Ed before we moved the story, where he and I walked through how our competitors might handle, once our story out how, would be out, how they would handle their feedback. How would David Faber at CNBC, how would the people at the Wall Street Journal, at the FT, the New York Times, Reuters, etc., how would they handle the story if we had something incorrect? Um, and that was a big concern because I didn't, as, as Ed said, you can't get this wrong. And I also didn't want us to be mostly right and have a lot of people poking holes in all the things we had gotten wrong. And it's tough. I mean, these situations play out. There's no way of knowing exactly how the situation would play out. I mean, in this case, the deal came together days later. But I do remember uh, when I broke a deal last year that Verizon was in early talks to buy AOL. You know, the Verizon CEO was at a conference like the next day or maybe it was even that day and basically dismissed the story. And so then I'm just sort of hanging out there with the story. And, you know, fortunately, three months later, that deal came together. But but a big part of this, I think, and I think we talked about this 
maybe one other time very early in the podcast is that you get vindication when the deals actually happen. So, you know, if that Verizon AOL deal had never happened, the world would never know that, like, my initial story was right at the time. But when it happened three months later, then people realize, oh, it's right. And in fact, you can go back and read the proxy and see exactly that it was right at the time. Uh, so, again, it, you, you, once you break a story, we're, as deal reporters, it's sort of this weird position I think we're put in where, you know, there's at least a part of you that's sort of rooting for the deal to happen because then you get more external credit if it actually does. Yeah, and I guess also it creates a bit of legacy where people remember you were the person who broke X deal and the deal goes down in history, whereas if it just falls apart, then it's, you know, only we kind of remember it. I guess one thing that I'm interested in, and I'd love to hear both your thoughts on it, I kind of know already what I would feel, I think. Um, what would we have done if this had been wrong? What would we have done if we put our story out, everything as we did on Thursday night, and then we wake up Friday, both companies come out and say, this is hogwash? I'd be applying for a job at Reuters. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Reuters. Don't, don't yell at me. <laughs> <laughs> and I would be right in line with uh, both of you, probably. Um, I, you know what? I never, I, never, I never had a doubt once we published the story. Um, so I guess I don't really have a good answer. I would have, uh, I would have spent a lot of time talking to people at very senior levels here, maybe even you know people outside the newsroom, um, who would have wanted to know how on earth could you be so wrong? How could you get this wrong? And I would walk them through all the conversations and all the sources and all the the you know the people who didn't help. And uh, it, it, I don't really have a good answer other than we might all be looking for. Other Your jobs. point's a good one though, Ed, because you are sort of running a dangerous game there when you're going on gut feel based on non-responses because we couldn't turn around and tell anyone exactly yeah. that these companies you know said to us we were wrong they they didn't respond like would that have been good enough for a higher up ed i don't know a lot of that is gut feel anyways that, i want to touch on that a little bit more uh, but first a quick word from our sponsor Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. So we're, we're back and, you know, there's actually a sort of an even more broad point here that as the as some of the details came back to us over the weekend about just how this deal came together. I, I know, Ed, you and I talked about this a little bit uh, you know, just uh, yesterday. It's sort of odd to me that even on these huge deals, a $100 billion-plus deal, the mechanics of how these deals come together is actually quite similar, whether it's sort of a $200 million deal or a $100 billion deal. Yeah. And I know that as I was talking to people that were working on this particular deal, I was looking for these sort of juicy anecdotes because we were writing what's called a TikTok, which is sort of the how the deal came together story, which we do on the really big deals and we don't do on the small deals. But actually, how the, how the bread is made... I think is often quite similar, and and I think if you go back and read our stories, while they're sort of interesting, there's no sort of, you know, aha crazy moment. I mean, I was talking to one particular source who was working on this, and I asked him directly, like, can you give me like something? Is there some anecdote? And and he thought about it for a while, and he said, eh, you know, I spent most of my time just doing valuations. We ate salmon. That's about right. We ate salmon. Right. right. I agree. I think it's odd. I, I felt this for a while. That's this sort of inverse um, correlation between the size of the deal and the, if you like, the kind of jazziness of the um, 
the process by which it comes together and this is obviously a huge deal and yet it's basically like a load of middle-aged dudes sat in an office somewhere talking about the structure of the merger agreement it's not that exciting i mean like the deal itself is exciting what it says about the media landscape is hugely exciting but um the coming together of it is is not and i think in often you see in like much smaller deals which probably we wouldn't do tiktoks for just because people are not that interested in those deals you have a much more kind of colorful cast of characters and just interesting stuff happening particularly if it's in a you know, if either the buying company or the selling company are not experienced at doing M&A or they might be family controlled and therefore you have lots of different competing interests, I think then you have a much more, um, if you like, sexy story. Whereas I just think here it's like, it's it's very formulaic. These are two very big, very professionalized companies that have a lot of experience doing M&A. Yeah, I, I spoke to somebody who worked on the deal as well and he said a lot of time was spent on uh, risk adjustment. So we walked the board through various scenarios. So if Time Warner saw top line growth of 5%, this is the kind of EBITDA you would likely see given certain GDPs. Then we walked them through the same top line growth, but with a higher GDP. And then you walk through lower top line growth with a lower GDP. And it's pretty boring. It's pretty monotonous, but that's in part how the board makes I'm the decision whether to sell. To it. Right? <laughs> yeah, you know, risk adjustment. That that, that risk is, adjustment uh, scenario. Just wow. just those two words together make me uh, sort of nod off. Um, but yeah, look, that speaks to we, we. You know, you can read our stories and and figure out who was on the deal team here, and it was very small, but it was people that speak this language. It was the the heads of M and A's at these companies, the two CEOs, the two CFOs. Uh, a couple bankers and then the general counsels like yeah that's what they're going to talk about i mean that's what that's right. what needs to get done right so they're they're probably not going to have these wild and crazy stories which sometimes do happen i don't want to say like that never happens in a deal but i think it typically happens when you have a bidding war for a deal and rather than a one to one yeah, I mean, I think, look, we obviously, from our point of view, we would love it if all deals were kind of thrashed out in the, you know, the VIP area of a strip club with a bottle of Cristal and all kinds of shady characters, but they're not. The reality is they are mostly, big deals particularly, are like this. They're very boring, they're very formulaic, and, and rules are followed extremely closely for obvious reasons. You have a lot of shareholders who would uh, be very annoyed if things were seen to be din done improperly. I'm curious, just to hear your thoughts, does, does this deal make sense to you guys? God, I got asked that on TV on Thursday, which was obviously for me was extremely painful because I don't cover media and know very little about the media other than obviously through working in it. Um, I, I think from everything I've read and everything I've learned since we wrote our story, it does seem to make sense. It seems to be something, you know, AT&T have obviously needed to go in this direction for a while. It seems to be on trend with the broader industry. I, I always get a bit skeptical when people start talking about vertical integration and things like that. But it, it does seem that adding this capacity or this ability to their existing operations is something that a lot of people have said very quickly it it does make sense yeah the government was not going to let at&t buy t-mobile that's that they already tried buying sprint is i'm not sure really that it helps at&t all at&t all that much so they needed to go in a different direction and content is where they've pointing for a while and you know there were other smaller deals perhaps alex that would have made sense but if you were going to go after content this was clearly the best asset and i was there. told point blank for some people uh you know at at&t or, or close to at&t that 
Randall Stevenson is only interested in really moving the needle. And how do you move a needle when you have a $200-plus billion company? You have to buy a bigger company. So I think a lot of the content assets that perhaps would have made sense for AT&T and maybe a smaller bite just wouldn't have been that effective. So if you believe sort of the AT&T story, and, and, and I do because it does make some logical sense, that they want to escalate uh, being able to watch video through your mobile devices and therefore enhance AT&T wireless. So if I'm watching all my TV on my phone instead of on my TV and I'm using AT&T's service, then that's going to be good for the broader company. Then by buying real premium content rather than, say, you know, some minor small little content company that only has a couple really good shows, if you're buying CNN, HBO, Warner Brothers Studio, even TNT and TBS, which have some premium sports content on there and some entertainment content you might be able to come up with some sort of package of this content and sell it with your wireless service and offer it to all your other competitors too to sell it but maybe you're able to sort of fast forward uh, the way that people watch video so that i can finally buy one subscription and get access to at least some of my content both live and on demand on my phone and on my television. I, I have a quick question for you, Alex, as someone who does know this industry well. We've, we've talked about why AT&T would want to do this, but why did Bukas want to do this? He made such a good case for a standalone business when Fox came in two years ago. Is this just price or is there something more fundamental here? Price is a part of it. Uh, I think that there's a fundamental decline in the cable business, so he was going to have to come up with some solution for what to do with CNN, Time Warner, or excuse me, TNT, TBS. Uh, Warner Brothers and HBO do seem like pretty good businesses, but even HBO is, in essence, a cable business. I mean, yeah, you, HBO Now and HBO Go, there is definitely a growth prospect there outside of cable. But, in the, and I'm hearkening back to Craig Moffat here, uh, who loves to make this analogy, and I agree with him completely. Let's say you just take out HBO and you sell HBO for $15 a month to whoever wants it and you remove it from the cable bundle. So now you have HBO content. Well, that's not going to be enough. You're probably going to need Netflix content too. And maybe that's not going to be enough either because really that's not getting you anything live. So you're probably going to need to buy at least the broadcast channels. And now all of a sudden you have something that pretty much looks like a cable bundle. Maybe I could bundle in all that stuff. Netflix, HBO broadcast for like a little less money and that would be more enticing for me to buy. So my, my point here being that the cable bundle seems like it's failing, but bundling content in general, I don't think that's going away at all. I think that's always going to be there. It'll just sort of be a different type of bundle. So in the end, Jeff Bukas is getting a little bit older now. He probably is thinking about retirement. It was a huge price. You know, he's been standalone for a couple of years since Fox came along. Fox offered $85 a share. Time Warner has never traded above $85 a share. So he's done a decent job of sort of keeping his company afloat. But I think maybe he saw the writing on the wall that getting to one oh seven fifty wasn't going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, and what I wonder now is that the, the people who care most about this deal, so we're talking about probably Google, we're talking about Apple, both of which are $500 billion plus in market cap, Comcast, Disney, which are roughly $150 billion plus in market cap. I wonder what moves do one of those four, or maybe someone else we're not thinking of, what do they do next? And do they wait to see 
whether the government is going to let the AT&T Time Warner deal go through, or do they try to draft behind it? So in the next three which, months Which or is so, what we saw when Comcast bought Time Warner Cable. We saw the drafting, AT&T buying DirecTV, in fact. And, and, and you see it in completely other industries, such as Dow and DuPont and Bayer, Monsanto, ChemChina, Syngenta, where a bunch of ag companies are trying to do big deals at the same time, or the biggest U.S. health insurance companies are trying to do deals at the same time. Uh, so I just wonder who might want to draft. Next. Well, I think we're, I think it's very possible we see the drafting because we already know that CBS and Viacom are looking at a merger. So that one I think becomes actually more likely now that Time Warner's out of the equation with AT and T because that was an out for CBS. So you're going to already see one media merger happen at least before, perhaps before the end of the year even. And then Liberty is that the one you expect? And, will... and then Charter will John Malone decide to roll up his content plays within charter because he owns stakes in discovery he owns a stake in the new lionsgate stars company that's still coming together and then of course he owns a big stake in charter the cable company that bought time warner cable now the second largest u.s cable company could he throw all that stuff together and have a vertically integrated company to compete and then would comcast buy t-mobile if they feel like at&t now has the so-called quad play of wireless tv phone and internet does comcast sort of want to replicate that they can't buy T-Mobile right away because the broadcast spectrum auctions, the wireless spectrum auctions, are still going on. That needs to stop before anything is done because Comcast plans on participating in that auction. Um, but after that, they, I suppose they could lob in a bit. And what T-Mobile. is Mr. Ergen thinking as well? Right, Charlie's always out there floating around with a dish. He is. I don't know what his out is, honestly. I think he's just praying Verizon will buy him at this point. But Verizon has said they don't really want a satellite business. Beyond that, uh, you know. I think Charlie Ergen says he has a lot of cards and a lot of balls in the air, and it's very possible he does. Look, he has this huge this huge swath of spectrum, wireless spectrum, that has real value. He could always just sell it and wind down the satellite business. I'm sure he does not want to do that. He's not that old, uh, and, I, and, and he has a lot of life in him, and I'm sure he wants to keep running a company if possible. But, you know, I think his options are, are actually somewhat limited these days. We'll see. But yeah, clearly Dish is always a wild card when it comes to this stuff. Maybe he'll make another run at Sprint. Who knows? I mean, he, he said he really didn't like Sprint when he looked at it, but you never know. You know, we I guess we move on to the next one here, Ed. What are your sort of what are your uh, final wrap up thoughts from breaking this story and then uh, you know re- looking at it uh, over this week? I think the primary emotion is relief, partly that um you know we got this big one and it, it's sort of great for the year, but also it, it, that it played out so quickly that we went from sort of the first story to the thing being over. So we can now move on to the next one, whatever that may be. That's NXP Qualcomm. It's coming on Thursday. Well, we'll see. I don't know, but it may not be too long. That may be our next I year. read that somewhere. You read that somewhere, exactly. And, and my feeling is just gratitude. Great work, guys. Pr- proud to be uh, proud to be part of the team. Ed Hammond, uh, my f- uh, partner in crime here, M&A reporter, and our our team leader and, and leader in life, Jeff McCracken. Uh, <laughs> thank you for joining us uh, on this episode of Deal of the Week. Uh, as always, catch Deal of the Week on iTunes or on Google Play or any app you use to listen to podcasts. And please... Follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. Jeff, where can they find you on Twitter? I believe it's JC McCracken on Twitter. I believe that's right. And Ed? Ed Hammond NY at Twitter. Assuming Twitter stays an independent I was going to say at Twitter.com, but that's wrong, isn't it? Right. Yes, exactly. See you next week.
Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.